0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Today we are start, or we're not starting, we're finishing a two-week series called Proof. And uh, if you didn't see last week or weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to look it up on either YouTube or our website. Uh, We basically looked at evidence to to try to prove God's existence through science. So the whole point of this two-week series is, can faith, can your faith be explained Defended and strengthened through logic, reason, and even science? And the answer to that question is yes. Faith and science are not opposing forces. We use, as we talked about last week, and we will look at again this week, uh, science really can strengthen our faith. It doesn't have to, it doesn't weaken it, it doesn't take away our need for it, it can actually strengthen and enhance uh, and grow and develop our faith. So that's kind of the sort of the push behind the, this two-week mini-series. Uh, Last week we basically tried to, for lack of a better term, explain God. We used three different scientific arguments at looking at the universe to show, I think, pretty strong evidence for the existence of God. Now that's just a starting point because as we, we mentioned last week, we don't just want to know about God, we want to know Him. We don't just want to be able to explain him, but we want to experience him. That's the whole point. It's, a, it's relational in nature. But it's good if we can start with the baseline that by looking at the natural world, we can find strong evidence for God's existence. So we tried to explain God last week, and this week we're going to flip that idea. And so the title of this week's message is God-splaining. I don't know if you're familiar with the term mansplaining or not. It's basically where men think they know everything, and so they try to condescendingly explain things specifically to women. Now, here's why that's dumb, guys, is because typically when we do that, they already know what we're telling them. First of all, they didn't ask us for an explanation, so we try to mansplain, like, let's, let's, let me use this example. We're sitting here watching a football game, and I'm trying to explain, let's just use Kim, she knows about football, because I've mansplained it to her, you know. Uh, no, but she know. but I'm just, I'm going to assume, because she's a woman, she knows nothing about sports. So I'm like, okay, that little oblong brown thing there is called a football. It's also the name of the sport that these men on the screen are playing. Their team in red are the Chiefs, and the team in whatever other color, we don't care, because we only choose. For the Chiefs, okay. So I would now do that the whole time. She didn't ask me to explain the rules of football, right? I just thought she needed to be to be mansplained to, uh, and she probably already knew most of what I was telling her. So I'm condescending, you know, being condescending toward her by mansplaining things. Well, today we're going to we're going to make a play on that word, and we're going to look at God splaining. What we're going to do is look throughout the Old Testament at scientific facts that God explained, God explained, so God explained, he explained scientific facts in the Old Testament thousands of years before modern science ever discovered those to be scientific facts. If you don't believe me, here we go. We're, gonna do, we're looking at six things specifically today, three about the natural world and three about the, really the human body that the Old Testament of the Bible explained exactly how modern science discovered it thousands of years later, okay? So we're going to look at these things. So the first two we're going to get through pretty quick, and then we'll spend a little bit more time on the last few here. So again, three things about the natural world that God explained through the Bible that science has only known for maybe a few hundred years at best. So the first thing that the Bible shows us or explains to us is that earth, our planet, is suspended in outer space, So for a lot of ancient cultures, they had other ways to explain how the earth was. They obviously had limited understanding and knowledge about the natural world. So a couple of uh, themes that you'll see throughout other ancient cultures is a, a, a huge turtle, a sea turtle, that has the land resting on its shell. And that's how they explained how the world is. There's another one that's similar in that there are four elephants who are sitting on top of a huge sea turtle's shell, and they are holding the surface of the earth. But God tells us in the book of Job, which was written in about 1500 BC, okay guys, Job 26.7, Job says this, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Now you're going to have to kind of, Uh, erase your mind of all these obvious scientific facts that we know now because there was no way and uh, you read any other ancient literature they don't talk like this they talk about turtle shells and the earth rests on that or elephants and they carry the earth the the only one that i have been able to find any ancient text that explains it how it really is is the old testament of the bible job tells us no we're hanging in the middle of nowhere with nothing Written in 1500 BC. So the earliest even hint of this being a possibility was Aristotle back in 350 BC. Okay? And even then, the actual discovery of this being the case wasn't until the mid 17th century. So we're talking 3,000 years before we discovered this to be true. God explained how the world works. The second one is similar in that the Bible, the Old Testament of the Bible, tells us that the earth is a sphere, okay? It's not, now, if you're a flat earther, okay, uh, read your Bible because it tells you uh, that the earth is a, is a sphere. And so for most of human history, people thought it was flat, right? And so that's, you know, there's some discussion about whether Columbus and Magellan were, were sailing around the world to prove that to be true. Some people say, oh, no, ancient culture. There's some evidence that Aristotle also in 350 B.C. sort of had this idea that the earth was round. Uh, but even 500 years ago, there was quite a bit of doubt if that were the case but Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, in 700 BC, says this: God sits above the circle of Earth. The people below him seem like grasshopper, or the people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them." So God gave this sort of scientific Easter egg, if you will, in Isaiah in 700 BC. that no, 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 it is round. you'll get there eventually, guys, but I'm going to drop this little hint in the Old Testament to kind of see if anyone figures that out. And in fact, the the third one, uh, the the discovery from that came from a love of scripture. So the third sort of discovery of science that God reveals early on is what we're going to call the, there's pathways in the oceans or pathways in the seas, so there was a man in the 1800s, his name was Matthew Fontaine Maury, and he was in the U.S. Navy for about 35 years. So part of what he did... Is he sort of he discovered things in the water in the ocean that had never been discovered before. He studied the seas and the oceans. Uh, he studied and navigation really improved the art of navigation. He studied wind patterns. He was one of the early what you'd call meteorologists, like that didn't really exist really sort of before him. And he was one of the first ones to think. You know what? I think if we we can maybe uh, you know get the weather wrong a lot and still make money from this industry. He didn't think. it... He didn't say it in those terms, but he was saying, we can maybe predict the weather based on patterns that I'm seeing that come up, and, you know, the rest is history. He also famously discovered, the the first person on record to discover that whales migrate in a certain pattern. Uh, So he, you know, was was revolutionary in that idea. So in 1847, he created uh, what's called the Wind and Current Chart of the North Atlantic. He modernized ocean travel. The next year in 1848, based on that report, he founded uh, an organization that is still in existence today, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. But the reason that we're talking about him is because in 1855, and you see this picture here, he wrote a work called The Physical Geography of the Sea. And this is a picture of that. So he was the first Scientists, the first person on record to discover several things about the water of our planet. First of all, that there are different depths within the oceans. We, people just thought, oh, there's like the bottom and that's it. And he's like, no, different sections, different parts have different depths to them. And he found ways to discover that through his study of, of the ocean. He also discovered, based on different wind currents and patterns and different depths of the ocean, that there are literally pathways in the ocean. Almost like there are different streets, different sections where you know, and so what he helped to do was really modernize water travel. Well, if you take this specific route, the wind will push you further that direction. You'll get there three days faster or a month faster. Or you'll avoid certain parts of the ocean here where there's a lot of storms if you can go around this way. So his study of that brought a lot of advancement to uh travel on the oceans. But the question is, where did this come from? Why did he have this desire to do that? It came from reading Psalm chapter 8, verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8 says this, you made them, and the psalmist is talking about humans, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. And here's the key, all that swim the paths of the sea. So Matthew Fontaine Marie read this as a young man in the 1820s and 30s, and he said, really? There are paths in the seas. There are lanes in the oceans. I'm going to see if I can figure that out. And so 40 years of study later, so the text we just showed the picture of that he wrote in 1855 is still the standard for oceanographers worldwide. This 165-year-old document is still what they use because he discovered what he thought he read in scripture. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Let's see if there's something to that. So he discovered different depths and different parts of the oceans and other waterways. He discovered the paths that God said were there. They're there, and the wind patterns and everything. So God revealed this, you know, this is Psalms, so 1,000 BC, right? So Almost 3,000 years before this man discovered it, this ancient document, it's been sitting there the whole time, guys, like, people have been reading this for thousands of years. He finally was like, ah, let's see if I can figure that out, and he did. So it came from uh, Scripture once again. So the, the, the last year we'll talk about are things that the Scripture says about our body that we've only recently, really in the last couple hundred years, have discovered to be true, and one of them just will probably blow your mind if you're not aware of this. The first one is a two-for-one. I I wasn't going to add these, but I just wanted to throw them in because these are two things we've been talking about a lot in the last few months. Okay, The two things that the Old Testament talks about are hygiene and quarantine. So you think, well, that seems obvious. Well, it it hasn't been except for like the last couple hundred years, okay? But God said in in Leviticus 15, uh, there's a long passage, I'm not going to read it, about hygiene. The key that the Old Testament talks about that we just recently figured out, especially with hand washing. You ever heard about hand washing a lot lately before, right? So Leviticus 15 talks about not just washing your hands, but doing so in clean water and more specifically in running water. So cultures have washed their hands for a long time, but they still had a high rate of disease because they would have the same dirty basin of water for days and weeks at a time and think, oh, I'm washing my hands. No, you're not. You're spreading more bacteria all over yourself again. It's not doing anything. So even in the medical field, this was true. So for instance, the, the uh, mortality rate during childbirth, even in the mid-1800s, was about 20%. So one out of every five mothers would die giving birth. Question is why? The main reason is because of a lack of hygiene that the Bible talked about in like 1500 BC or 1300 BC, give or take, right? It's a long time ago, okay? They should have known this, but they didn't. So doctors who would perform operations or, or you know, delivery of children, of babies, they would, you know, not wash the utensils, and use them on women to women to women, and then they would get infections and die. They didn't know any better. They didn't think, oh, running water, oh, fr- oh, maybe I should actually clean them and not put them in the same water I just cleaned this in before. They would wash their hands in the same dirty basin of water. They'd been washing in all week long, and that's why there was such a high death rate, even in, with professional, you know, medical people. Another historical example of this was in—this is one of my favorite stories in history of all time— in 1880, the president was James Garfield. He had just been in office about six months, and he was shot by a crazy guy in a train station. So he is, you know, they take him back home, and they lay him down, and doctor after doctor and scientist after scientist are trying to locate exactly where the bullet is so they can get it out because they're afraid he's going to die from, from the bullet and from what's going on inside. And so guess what? They're digging in with their nasty, dirty fingers, And these utensils that they have not properly cleaned, and he suffers for weeks and weeks and weeks until finally, near the end of 1880, President James Garfield dies. Turns out, he didn't die from the bullet wound, or from the bullet. Where the bullet was lodged in his body, the hole would have healed up and he would have been just fine. He died from infection because of lack of hygiene from these medical professionals who clearly never read Leviticus 15, right? If they had, they would have thought, hmm, running water. Oh, let's get clean utensils before we stick it in the president, you know? Uh, And so that, yeah, the lack of hygiene that was there all along killed one of our presidents. Good job, guys. You did it. Yay. Then the quarantine thing is in Leviticus 13 as well, where we see, and not just Leviticus 13, it talks about leprosy specifically, uh, skin disease uh, that is, it is spreadable. It is, you know, you can spread it to other people. And so they set up leper colonies. They quarantine the people that had this infectious disease. And it was not just with leprosy, but any sort of Um, sickness or disease you would be a certain amount of time you got to get out into this specific quarantined area until you're better then you can get back into society does that sound familiar to anybody like lately we talk about quarantine a lot it's in leviticus this is over 3500 years ago that god's been saying hey but until like the last hundred years or so 150 years maybe we've not really done this very well and so that's why certain diseases run rampant through nations and even worldwide pandemics kill millions upon millions upon millions of people because they didn't do this advice that god said might be a good idea if you don't want to spread the disease get the person with the disease off by themselves till they're cured and then you can put them back in so again the bible described things we've been looking at on the news a long time ago it's pretty interesting Here's the the fifth one is, to me, the most interesting, the most, as I was studying the last couple weeks, I was like, this cannot be real, but it is. Uh, Did you know that your ribs can regenerate? Your rib bone can grow back? It's true. So rib, the bone, your rib bones are actually used for a lot of reconstructive surgery. The reason is because scientists have known for maybe 150 years, possibly, um, or so, that there's a casing. I'm going to read this so I get it right. The the periosteum is tissue surrounding the actual rib bone. If you kind of cut that open and take the bone out of that tissue, then when the periosteum, it contains little things called osteoblasts, and they actually can reproduce a rib in three to four months, is what we discovered. I'd never heard this before, and so I'm like, this is crazy, but what does it make you think of? A rib you can take out that will grow back makes you think it makes me think anyway of Genesis chapter 2 right so here's G- Genesis 2:21 and 22 so the Lord God caused the man Adam to fall into a deep sleep while the man slept the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man so there is debate uh, from a lot of different fronts on is the creation story real is it literal or is it just a fable to explain how we got here and I, here's what I'm going to say either way the fact that the only bone mentioned in the story whether it happened for real or not the, this was written again 3,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago so the only bone so if it really happened God used the only bone that he was going to make able to grow back to form another person He knows what he's doing, right? That's what we're learning here. And even if the story is just an explanation that didn't really happen, guess what? The author would not have known because it wasn't until like the 1840s or 1850s that anyone ever knew this happened. So even if the author of Genesis is like, well, let's just use this story as an example of to explain how we got here, how would they have known to use the only bone in your body that can grow back to make this story work? So either way, however you want to argue that, it's just an amazing thing that Scripture, that the Old Testament, the very beginning of the whole Bible, explains this natural, physical phenomenon that we would not have known for a couple thousand years later. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. Here's the sixth and last one this morning that we'll talk about uh, as, we, as God tries to god himself and the world to us, and that is that the life of the human body is in the blood, or life of anything is in its blood. Again, you would think this is obvious, but it really hasn't been until fairly recently. So Leviticus, again, Leviticus 17, 11. So we've referenced Leviticus a lot. Maybe this is the only time you've ever read Leviticus in your life, because that's the book you skip in the Old Testament, Right? possibly. So it's interesting, though. There's a lot of natural uh, sort of world history here. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. We'll talk about that in just a second. Again, this seems like an obvious thing. Yes, you need all of your blood to survive, right? However, there was a practice that was used even in less than 200 years ago called bloodletting where if you would have an infection or you would have some sort of ailment doctors would think oh there's something wrong with their blood let's drain their blood and then they'll be okay and when people you know don't live after that you would think they would stop doing it it's actually how George Washington died famously so December 13th, 1799, he wakes up early that morning, and he, he's he been out riding a horse, supposedly, in really cold, nasty, wintry weather. The day before, he wakes up, and he has a super sore throat. It's very swollen. He can't hardly breathe. And so his wife calls for the doctor who comes in, and he gives him the examination. He's like, yeah, I think we need to do some bloodletting here. So the doctor, in an effort to in, is incre- or decrease the extreme swelling in uh, George Washington's throat uh, drained about 40% of his blood from his body. I guess the one wasn't going down fast enough. It's like, more draining! I don't know. And then by the end of that night, the president is dead. Well, because you need more than 60% of your blood to survive. So you would have thought modern medical science would know life is in the blood. God obviously knew it a long time ago, but that practice was very widely used, thinking, oh, it's not that important. They can get by without it because that's the problem. They didn't know you have to, you know, kind of have it to, to live, Um, And so when we looked at Leviticus 17 specifically, that explains why they have certain dietary restrictions, yes, but it also explains why their animal sacrificial system was necessary because God's stance has always been anyone who disobeys my law, their life is required for their sin against me. So in exchange for their life, they offer an animal sacrifice. So they would take this animal to the priest. So basically my job in ancient... Jewish culture. I'm basically a butcher, but I'm not doing this a whole lot. I'm, you know, cutting up meat. I'm, I'm like a g- super grill master butcher kind of guy. That'd be my job. So they would bring it to the priest. He would cut it up. He would drain the blood because he, again, God's saying, I'm going to take their life in exchange for your life. And he knew it's all in the blood, which also then explains why Jesus had to shed his blood because it's his life, for hours on the cross. It wasn't just that, you know, certain, a certain thing had to happen, or had, it had to be this specific way because God knew all along that the life is in the blood. Again, something that modern science, even in our own country, didn't know even 200 years ago. It's pretty amazing to consider how much God really knows about the world that he made and how he explained it in little things that seem obvious now, but back then were revolutionary, so much so they were ignored for a long time. So today, though, has been more than just some cool science facts or, you know, uh, sort of predictions about medicine or anything like that. Today should hopefully for all of us watching or listening today should reveal this, that we may not always know uh, why God does what he does, but we can trust that God always knows. So what today has what I've tried to show today is that we may not always know or understand or see what God is doing or know why he's doing it or know what he's going to do to do next. We may think, "Oh God, why? Not you owe me answers and explanations and I or we'll say, "Well, if I figure all this stuff out, then I'll believe." Or if I can know all of the answers to all of my questions, then I'll put more faith in God." And he's like, "No, that's not how this works." He's like, "You don't have to know because I know, and he shows us even through how the world is, how our bodies work, that he's known all along exactly how every little part of the entire universe works because he made it. So just because we don't know why he does something or we don't understand, or we don't have the reasons or the answers, we can trust God because God knows. That's what faith is. So there's this idea of blind faith. Well, I can't do that because I, I just can't go that far. It's not blind faith. I may be blind, but God certainly is not. And that's the point. I'm following his lead. I'm putting my life in his hands. I'm trusting his know-how because he has All of the know-how, and he shows us over and over, and there are other things that I could have mentioned in here, but I just cut it down to those few. But there are all sorts of things where God reveals he knows what he's doing. It's up to us to trust him in that.